good morning, church family. If you're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 43. If you're looking at the black uh, Bible in the chair that you're sitting in, that should be found on page 36 and 37 of that black Bible. As a reminder, friends, if you don't own a Bible uh, that you can read at your home, that black Bible is our gift to you. Please take it home, keep it, read it, mark it up, ask questions, dig into God's word, uh, and, and please receive that as a gift from us to you. Everyone there in Genesis 43? All right. I want you to think for a second, when was the last time that you can remember that you struggled with jealousy or envy? Proverbs reminds us that a a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. In other words, what Proverbs is teaching is that envy is like a disease that destroys the body. Envy is a disease that destroys both the body and our relationships. Back in fifth grade, we played a a game called knockout on the basketball court where you line up with your friends and there's two basketballs. And the idea is, is that if the guy behind you makes the basket before you do, then you are knocked out of the game. And so when it was my turn to shoot, I shot, I missed, but Justin, my friend who was behind me, made it. So I was knocked out. Uh, Justin was better at basketball than me, but I was on the court that day to prove to everyone there that I was better than him. So when he came over to remind me that I was knocked out, I didn't congratulate him. I punched him in the face. And I gave him a bloody nose. And I got in big trouble. But why did I punch him? Because of envy. Envy is sorrow at someone else's, sorrow is, envy is sorrow at another's good. God calls us to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, but envy does the opposite. Envy rejoices when others weep, and envy weeps when others rejoice. Makes a big competition and comparison out of everything in life. So, again, let me ask you, where do you find it difficult to rejoice when others succeed and you don't? Where do you find yourself coveting someone else's abilities or skills or good looks? Where do you find yourself envying the opportunities that they have but you don't? The affection they get when you're ignored. The respect that they receive when you're not taken seriously. Envy can lead to self-pity and to an anger that if left unchecked will do a lot more damage than a playground scuffle. Envy can destroy friendships, churches, and nations and families. Why did Cain kill Abel 
in Genesis 4? Because of envy. Why did Esau plan to kill Jacob in Genesis 27? Because of envy. What pushed Rachel to the point of not wanting to live anymore? Because she envied Leah. We see this all throughout the book of Genesis. Fast forward to Joseph, right? His his brothers loathed that stupid coat of many colors. They couldn't stand the fact that Jacob favored him above them. So out of envy, they stripped him of his robe and they threw him in a pit and left him to die. Envy was destroying this relation, their relationships in this family. Joseph and his family have been estranged for over 20 years at this point by the time we get to chapter 43. And so when God ordained a famine in all the land that would bring this family that had been estranged from Joseph for all these years, when God ordained a famine that would actually bring this family to Egypt, we see that, ah, God is up to something. This is no accident. You remember in Genesis 35, 11, God came to Jacob and he made a promise to him. He said that a nation and a company of nations shall come from you, Jacob. I'm God Almighty. A, a nation shall come from you and a company of nations from you. So in other words, listen, it's not just a nation that will come from Jacob's family, but a company of nations. That word company is the Hebrew word kahal. It's, a, it's an assembly of nations. In the, in the Greek, we might say it is ekklesia. It is a church of nations. And he's saying, I'm going to make a, an assembly of nations, a, a, a company of nations that would be a unified, harmonious whole. So God's promise is, more, is to do more than just bring this family under the same roof. You can, get, you can get enemies under the same roof. He's saying, I'm going to do more than that. I'm going to bring you under the same roof, but I'm also going to reconcile you and transform your divided family into a company, a harmonious whole of nations. Not easy to do that, though. And so for this reconciliation to happen, what we saw back in chapter 42 is that before reconciliation can happen, repentance needs to happen. But the question we left in chapter 42 is, had Joseph's brothers changed over those 20 years? Or were were Joseph's brothers the same envious, self-centered people who were willing to betray Joseph and put him in a pit for personal gain? Well, when they came to Egypt, back in chapter 42 for the first time, Joseph, the second command of all of Egypt, he set up a test to see if his brothers had changed over those two decades. He kept Simeon back in Egypt, and he sent other, the other brothers, the other nine brothers, back home with grains so that the family would survive, but he also snuck their money that they used to purchase the grain back in with the grain. And he said, if you want to see your brother again, you got to come back with your youngest brother, Benjamin, and prove that you were the honest men that you claimed to be. So when they get home and they unpack their, their, their sacks of grain, they find the money, they're like, oh no, we look like spies. We look like dishonest people. If we go back, we're doomed. 
Joseph's test was set up. Would they come back for their brother Simeon or would they abandon him like they had abandoned Joseph? Had Joseph's brothers truly changed? If you're taking notes, scene number one of our text is this. Returning to Egypt, returning to Egypt. This is verses one through 14. Let's look at the text together. Verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. We would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with him the money that you that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, we don't know how long the family waited in Canaan. We don't know how long. Simeon was in prison in Egypt uh, after returning from their first trip. So, but what's clear is that between the first trip and the second trip, this family is a car that is in neutral. The engine's revving, but they ain't going anywhere. They were trapped, and they felt trapped. They felt pinned in by their circumstances on their right and on their left. On the one hand was this famine, They needed food. This was not just, I'm a little hungry. No, they needed food from Egypt if, verse 8, they were to live and not die. This was life and death. So on one hand, you have the famine. On the other hand, in their circumstances, was Egypt. Finding the money in their bags from their first trip made them look like dishonest shoplifters to an Egyptian ruler who was accusing them of being dishonest spies. So if they returned back to Egypt now with the money that they had found in their, in their bags, it's likely that they will not come back with Simeon or Benjamin or any of themselves for that matter. It's likely that they'll all be put in prison. So they're stuck, trapped by their circumstances, and they don't move. 
Now, it's interesting, if we fast forward, years later, God's people will find themselves in a similar situation. In the exodus from Egypt, they too will be trapped by the Red Sea on one side and a bloodthirsty Egyptian army on the other side, and there's no human solution. That's the point. That's the point. Trapped with their circumstances, Jacob and his family had no human, no earthly solution. And so what do they do? They can't look left for a solution. They can't look right for a solution. They can't look within for a solution. So where do they look? They look up. Finally, they look up. Verse 14, Jacob says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he, and, and may he send you back with your, with your other brother and Benjamin. Jacob looks up to God, and he prays. It was C.S. Lewis who said that God... God speaks to us in our pleasures. He whispers to us in our pleasures, but he, he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We don't want pain, but if it leads us to the path of life and gets us to look up, it's a good thing. And notice when Jacob prays that he calls on and remembers who God is. He calls on God Almighty. That's not an accident. It's the Hebrew name El Shaddai. It's the name that, that, that God revealed himself as in Genesis 17, 1, when he initially makes a covenant with Abraham, who, by the way, was 99 years old. They were childless. And he says, I'm God Almighty. I know it doesn't look like you can have kids when you're 99, but I'm God Almighty. It's the same name that he reveals himself as in Genesis 35, 11, when he makes his promise to make Jacob into a nation and a family of nations. Well, that seems impossible. They're at odds with each other. But I'm God Almighty. I'm the God who created the earth out of nothing by the power of my word. It's the same God that Pastor Tony was revealing last week in Psalm 115, that he, that he, is, he is God who's in the heavens. He does as he pleases. He's God Almighty. That's where his, their hope was beginning to rest not in themselves, not in their circumstances, but in God for whom nothing is impossible. Friends, is that where you are looking? Does God have you in a situation where you feel trapped? Are you looking up? Do you see God Almighty? Because that is our hope. That is our confidence. He is our confidence. Well, Jacob, Jacob knows and he no doubt remembers God's promises that he had made to him back in chapter 35. I'm going to make you a new nation and a company of nations. I got you. He knows that promise, right? But his stomach is growling. Simeon's still stuck in Egypt. And the second most powerful man in Egypt thinks that they're dishonest spies. So yeah, he knows God's promise, but the circumstances don't look too good. And we as the reader, we know where they're headed. We know that this ruler happens to be Joseph, but Listen, Jacob doesn't know that yet. He can't see it yet. And friends, that's often the way our Christian walk is, is like. We have God's promises. We know God's character because he's revealed it to us in his word. But we don't know, we don't know how each detail of today or tomorrow is going to unfold. And so it feels risky. Notice at the end of verse 14, Jacob says, if, if, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. If, he, there, in, in his mind, as he looks at this journey they're going to take, it's risky. 
if I am bereaved. He doesn't know. He knows God's promise, but he doesn't know how this is going to unfold, and so he doesn't know how this is going to play out. Do you know that life involves risk, friends, even as a Christian? Sometimes we try to avoid risk. We don't like risk. We want to play it safe. And so we we try to reduce risk and eliminate risk and play it safe by not sharing the gospel. Because what if they reject me? We play it safe by not leading our families with having a tough conversation that we need to have. Because what if it just doesn't go well? We play it safe by not giving generously of our finances. Because what if I need that money later? Playing it safe may feel like we're somehow, if I just arrange the circumstances rightly, I can just eliminate all of risk in life. But listen, church, risk-free living is a mirage. Whatever you think your fortress is, if it's not God, it is a mirage. There's no such thing as risk-free living. Now, I'm not... When I'm talking about embracing risk here, I'm not, I'm not encouraging recklessness like driving in your car 100 mile an hour down 301 without your seatbelt. That's just dumb. But, but I am saying and trying to make the point that, that trying to eliminate risk is unavoidable. If you, if you stay inside your home to avoid the storm, you might have a heart attack. If you go outside to avoid the house burning down, you might get struck by lightning. There's just no matter what you try to do, we're not in control. Jacob didn't want to lose another child, which I think is understandable. But his reluctance to act seemed fueled by self-pity. Do you notice that in verse 6? If we could hear his tone in verse 6, we might hear self-pity. Why? Why, guys? Why did you treat me so badly to tell the man that you had another brother? Why did you do this to me? Woe is me. Now, listen, let's just look at the facts. Jacob's family is starving to death and they they won't go until he says go. They need him to act. But he's kind of just wallowing in self-pity, in a passive indecision. But notice in contrast to his passive indecision is Judah, which is remarkable, right? In, In verse eight, Judah steps up. He takes responsibility for Benjamin and he leads the family down a path that will lead to life. And this is interesting because back in chapter 38, if you remember Judah, Judah was a scoundrel. Judah was driven by his sinful desires. But here we see that there begins to be what looks like a change in Judah. He's changing into a leader. Young men, listen up. Let me talk to you guys for a little bit. When I was your age, my dad sat me down and he's taught me over the years that a godly man is somebody who rejects passivity, who accepts responsibility, who leads courageously and expects God's reward, expects the greater reward, God's reward. And he would, he would talk to me about that and he would seek to model what that what living like a godly man looks like in our, our home. It's what I teach my boys And it's what I want for you as well as young men in this church, that you too would reject passivity, that you would accept responsibility, that you would lead courageously and that you would expect God's reward, the greater reward. But it's easy for us 
to end up looking around at people who are knocking it out of the park. You look at somebody who is uber gifted. It, it looks like everything they, everything they do in life, they're hitting a home run. And then you compare yourself to them and you, you end up doing nothing because you're like, well, I'm not like them. And you just end up wallowing in self-pity. You end up wallowing in inaction and indecision. Guys, my encouragement is this. Read your Bible. Know God's word. Know what he requires of you. Then seek to love God with all your heart. Seek to love your neighbor as yourself. And do it. If, if compared to the others who are hitting it out of the park, you feel inadequate to do what God requires, lean into it. Of course you're weak. We're all weak. God is strong. We look to God Almighty. Look to God Almighty in your weakness. Pray, work hard, and then leave the results to God. Now, embracing risk, whether you're a man or a woman, embracing risk as a Christian is not some arrogant machismo. Right? No, it's, one writer notes, it's, it's risk-taking that honors Christ by saying, I love Jesus, I trust Jesus, I believe that Jesus is in control, only Jesus can provide the strength to do this, and only Jesus will govern the outcome. I am willing to walk into this risk for the glory of Jesus because I'm trusting Jesus. And the reason I can trust Jesus is because he died for me and he rose again for me, proving his heart once and for all for me. That's godly embrace of risk. When Katie and I were getting married, we were, uh, uh, she, was, she was learning to, okay, if I marry this guy, it means I'm going into the ministry with him. And so we were talking a lot about this idea of entering into the ministry together. And we were, we were wrestling with that decision. I was wrestling with the decision to go into ministry because it wasn't just me anymore. It was me taking responsibility for her and whatever kids God might give us. And I felt the weight of responsibility and the risk that it involved. And I remember wrestling with, what if, what if I do this? What if I finish seminary, take a church, be a pastor of a church by God's grace, and only to find out I'm not cut out for this? What if I fail? What if I flop? There's no guarantees. And I felt in that wrestling the temptation to play it safe. Let's just, let's just get rid of all risk and do something else. And I'll never forget, my, my wife looked at me and she said, I know there are no guarantees. We might fail, but I'd rather trust God and take the risk than play it safe and do nothing. I'm with you, whatever happens. And, and hearing my wife trust God like that put steel in my spine. And 18 years later, here I am, whether you like it or not. Uh, um, but... But friends, my point is this, risk, risk is unavoidable. I don't, I don't, listen, I don't know what a year holds from now. Maybe, I, maybe, maybe, who knows? We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Our life is a vapor. But God knows what tomorrow brings. And God only knows what tomorrow brings. He controls what tomorrow brings. The question is, will you and I step out and trust God? at work, at home, with our finances, with our ministry, with our private life, with everything. Will we trust him? Scene number two, a feast with the ruler. 
So scene number one is returning to Egypt. Scene number two is a feast with the ruler. This is, this is verses 15 through 34. Let's look at verse 15 together. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of this house, his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, ah, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, oh my Lord, we, we came down the first time to buy food and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other other money down with us to buy our food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. Let me pause there. So we see in this section here, Joseph's brothers pack up their present that they're going to offer to Joseph. They bring their brother Benjamin, and they bring the money that they need to buy grain, and they bring the other money that they found in. Their, their, their bags of grain from their first trip. So they're bringing double money this time. And when they stand before Joseph the first time, he doesn't talk with them. He, he, he sees them, they stand before him, and he goes back to work, it seems, and then, and then he instructs his steward to invite them to his house for lunch. But they don't know what's going on. All they know is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt is telling them to come to his house. It feels like they're being invited into the principal's office. Now the spotlight is on them, and they're shaking in their boots. They're afraid. They think, verse 18, it's because of the money. I knew it. And they're afraid that Joseph will come and assault them. He's going to make them servants, and he's going to take their donkeys. Now, in retrospect, like, when you look at the big picture, like, I don't think he needs their donkeys, but they're afraid. Why? Why are they so nervous about a simple lunch invitation? Guys, it's just a lunch invitation. Why are you so nervous? I think in part it's because they, they used to comfort themselves with the lie that they were honest men. But their consciences which had been seared and silent for 20 years. God awakened their conscience in chapter 42, and now they know uh, we're not honest men. We're guilty men. We know what we did to Joseph, and it was wrong. And, they, and their conscience is saying, you know you're guilty. And so now every knock on the door, it's the police! Every question is, an indictment. It's just a question. Every lunch invitation is a threat. Friends, what about you? Do you have a guilty conscience? If your conscience is condemning you, it's God's mercy in your life. It's saying, make it right. 
But if you don't make it right, you're going to walk around and every knock on the door is going to feel like an indictment. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. Why? Guilty conscience. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. They got nothing to be ashamed of. Look at verse 23. He, the steward, replied, they're shaking their boots, he replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Let me pause there for a moment. Listen, we need to remember that Joseph, what his brothers did to Joseph, Joseph had every reason to get even with them. He had every reason to take out vengeance. Not only did he have every reason, he had the power to do it. He's number two in Egypt. All he's got to do is say the word and they're going to cast them into the dungeon or off with their heads. And there's a sense in which if he did that, he'd be right to do that. They were guilty. It's what they deserved. But as they trembled, as they're afraid, and not, they don't know what Joseph's about to do, it's in that moment, at the end of verse 22, when they're trying to make their case, it's in that moment that verse 23 shines brightly in the text. He, Joseph's steward, replied, peace, shalom, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. The Egyptian steward tells them that the God of your father, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure. He's taking care of your debt. Now we know that Joseph put the money back So why would the steward say that God did it? Well, both are true. One of the things that we're seeing in this text with Joseph is that in God's providence, God had brought Joseph to Egypt. Why? To provide food that would save the lives of his family and countless others. God was providentially at work and he was using Joseph. So did Joseph put the money back in? Yeah, he did. But but the steward has good theology. He understands that it was God ultimately who had put treasure in their account. He just happened to use Joseph to do it. So knowing that Joseph and his brothers had been estranged, there had been no peace, there had been no shalom between them for 20 years. 
They thought he probably is dead. To hear the steward say to these guilt-stricken brothers, peace, peace, peace to you. That's remarkable. Peace translates the Hebrew word shalom, and that Hebrew word shalom shows up four times, once in verse 23, and then three times in verses 27 and 28. It's translated not as peace, but as welfare or well. So in verse 27, he inquired about their welfare, their shalom, and said, is your father well? How is your father's shalom? And they assured him then about their father's shalom, peace. They are preoccupied, they are obsessed, they're concerned that Joseph is going to assault them. But Joseph's heart, Joseph's goal is to restore shalom, to restore peace and unity to this divided and estranged family. So once the steward says peace to you, and then he brings out Simeon. I think the giving, you know, pulling Simeon out of jail and bringing them back into the house with the brothers, it helps convince them that Joseph was not out to assault them, but just to have lunch. So once they realize, okay, it's just lunch, they quickly organize their gift that their father had encouraged them to bring as a gift. And remember, from verse 11, their gift included honey, balm, and myrrh. So imagine when, when Joseph received these gifts, the smells of the, of the gifts would just come into his nose and would, 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 it must have brought a flood of memories because remember it was honey and balm and myrrh that were on the cart of the Ishmaelites that their brothers had sold them to in chapter 37. So as he sees this gift coming from them, of honey and balm and myrrh, it would have struck him. Oh, how the tables have turned. His story had come full circle. And, as, and, and notice, as they give this gift that brings back this flood of memories, what are they doing? They're bowing down to the ground, exactly as God had told them they would do in a dream in chapter 37. Overwhelmed by it all, Joseph steps out. He just, it's too much. He, he's overwhelmed with love for his brothers and he just steps out and weeps. And I think, again, this is a reminder for us that, that the, the cost and the burden of reconciliation is not only a cost for those who must repent of their sin, but there's also a cost that comes from those who are sinned against. They have to relive this thing. But it's part of the process of reconciliation, as hard and as costly as it is. So Joseph goes out and weeps. Look at verse 31 then. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and they by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. So the meal is served and Joseph sits separate from them. Why? Well, 
Remember the last time that Joseph and his brothers were together for a meal? He was back in chapter 37. Where was Joseph? In a pit, left to die. And they're up above, they're together, but they're up above eating, ignoring his pleas to have mercy on him. Now they're back together in Joseph's house, eating separate. When Joseph sits them down, he arranges their, their, their order in which they're seating, and, and he arranges their seating, their, their, their seating arrangement from the youngest of them to the oldest of them. And verse 33 says, they look at one another in amazement. I mean, who is this guy? How does he know who's the youngest and who's the oldest? Is God at work in this? You can feel their guilty conscience is being pricked again. And then the test comes in verse 34. Benjamin, Joseph's brother, the other son of Rachel, who is now Jacob's other favored child. Joseph was the favored one, but they think he's dead. Now it's Benjamin who's the favorite. He is now given five times as much as any of their food. What's Joseph doing? He's testing them. 20 years ago, they hated Joseph because he was Jacob's favorite. Out of envy, they threw him in the pit and left him to die. So now giving Benjamin, Jacob's new favorite, five times the amount of food they received set up a test. If there was still jealousy and animosity in their hearts, this test would stir it up and Joseph would know immediately if they had changed or not. Were they still the same envious, self-centered people who were willing to betray their brother for self-advantage? Or had they changed? Have they changed? The text records no arguments, no conflict over the fact that Benjamin got five times. Instead, what the text says is at the end of verse 34, it says, they drank and were merry with him. Benjamin, Benjamin gets five times what we do, so be it. It's time to feast. It's time to feast. They pass the test. Verse 34 shows that they're not enslaved to bitterness and envy anymore. They have been set free. Do you want to be set free from envy, church? Set free from jealousy and the, the problem of self-comparison? I do. I hate, I hate it. It's rottenness in my bones. I don't want this. So how, how, how did these brothers change? How did they get set free? I mean, it's, it's, listen, let's not just belittle this. It's hard. It's hard not comparing yourself with someone and wanting what they have, right? It's, it's hard to rejoice when others succeed and you don't. It's hard not taking a little pleasure when the people that we envy stumble and fall. Just a little pleasure. It's hard not to mope and to grumble when others get praise, attention, affection, and we're overlooked. It's hard. Proverbs 27.4 says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? You can't. We can't get free from envy and jealousy in our own strength. We can't stand up to it. So how did they change? What's the secret? 
You ready? Grace. Grace. Let me show you. Remember, remember Jacob's prayer when they left for Egypt in verse 14? May God Almighty grant you mercy. Grace. Then when the brothers were terrified to stand before Joseph and the tension is at its greatest in the story at the end of verse 22, and they, they don't know if they're gonna live or die, we come to verse 23, peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Now, listen, peace came not because they were good people, not because they were honest men. I think it's clear by now from what we know about these brothers, they're not good men. They're not good people. They're not honest men. Peace came because of God's grace. God put treasure in their account. And then skip to the end of verse 29. When he sees Benjamin, he says to his brother, God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm. I love that picture of compassion growing warm. The word compassion means to have mercy. It means to not condemn. We might say his compassion, his mercy boiled up. He, 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 there, his love for his brothers, his mercy in his heart, it, it, it didn't just warm up, it just it erupted. It boiled over, so he had to go away and cry in secret. The point is, these brothers received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And grace, friends, is this. It's an undeserved, unmerited gift. Can't pay for it. Can't be a good enough person to earn it. You can't say you owe me. No, it's a gift. Grace upon grace. Which helps us tie the text together. Because yes, Benjamin received five times what they got. Benjamin did get more than he deserved. You can imagine their hearts saying, it's not fair. It's what our hearts cry out, right? It's not fair. Why does he get five times more? Benjamin did get more than he deserved. But these brothers had come to see that they also got much, much more than they deserved. Because they deserved for their sins and their wickedness and their betrayal, they deserve to be thrown into a dungeon. And yet here they are sitting at Joseph's table enjoying a feast. They'd experienced God's grace. And seeing God's grace, experiencing God's grace is what set them free from being enslaved to envy and bitterness. Friends, this is what points us to the gospel. This is what points us to the good news of Christianity. I, I think if, if you're looking at this story and say, well, who are we meant to identify with in this story? It's not Joseph. <laughs> We're meant to identify with the brothers. We've all sinned. We've, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against each other. We've sinned. Not, there's not one of us who escapes that, that title. We've sinned, and all of us have fallen short of God's glory. And we've sinned, we've sinned against a holy God. We've rejected God who is good and who is loving and we have rejected his good authority of our, over our lives so that we can do what we want when we want. 
And the wages of our sin, the wages of our rebellion, the Bible says, is death. It's our wages. So if we get what we deserve, it's death. If we get what's fair, it's God's wrath. It's hell. Let that sink in. And yet God and his mercy, God and his grace comes to rebels like you and me with an invitation of peace. An invitation that makes those of us who are by default his enemies and transforms us into his friends. It's an invitation from God where strangers are invited to feast at his table with God himself. Not as a guest, not as a stranger, but as a member, an adopted member of his family. How? Not because you're good. Not because I'm good. It's not because the members of First Baptist Church are good people. Not true. It's because of God's grace. Verse 23, the steward told Joseph's brothers, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure. Similarly, God offers peace for rebels like you and me, saying, come to me by trusting in Jesus, my son. Why? Because on the cross, he died to pay not the penalty for his sin. On the cross, he died to pay the debt of our sin for the sins of anyone who will trust in him. Romans 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Justified by faith, by trusting in Christ, we have peace with God. Shalom. With God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. My non-Christian friend, I implore you this morning to turn from your sin, to turn from your self-reliance. When we enter this world, we do not enter this world as his friends or as his children. We enter this world as his enemies because of our sin, as as strangers to God. But he's inviting you through the gospel this morning to come and to be a member of his family, a forgiven member of his family, a friend of God. But you must turn from your sin and turn from your self-reliance and trust in Christ that you may enjoy peace with God. And here's the thing. When we trust in God, when we experience this peace, when we experience this reconciliation with God, which is a vertical reconciliation, it then fosters and cultivates peace and reconciliation with others on a horizontal level. Even with those that we once envied. Just consider Jesus' parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. You've got the younger brother and the older brother. After the younger brother squanders his inheritance in sin and debauchery, he finally hits rock bottom. He comes to his senses. He repents. He turns around. He comes home to his father. Maybe he'll accept me as a slave. But when his father sees his son coming home, he The father runs to his son, wraps his arms around his repentant son, and throws a big old party for his son. His son had come home. It's time to celebrate. And the point is, is that this is how God, our father, receives a repentant sinner. There's a big old party in heaven. But while everyone is celebrating, the son has come home. Where's the older brother? Outside. Arms crossed, angry, 
bitter. I work hard for dad. And he gives me a sandwich. And my younger brother comes home from a life of sin and debauchery, and he gets a fattened calf. He got five times what I got. That's not fair. Friend, like the older brother, you may have, you may be given over to self-comparison, stuck in the bitterness of envy, wallowing in self-pity, but you don't have to stay there. God, our Father, comes to us as the older brother and says, come on in. I want you to come in. You're invited to come in. You don't have to stay stuck in bitterness and envy. I want you. His heart is saying, come in. I want you to enjoy this feast with your brother, with the rest of these forgiven people in this family. After Jesus arose from the dead, the apostle Peter learned that in John 21, he learned that his future meant suffering. He was going to die. Jesus told him that. Well, that's hard to take, right? So Peter's like, okay, I can accept that. But then he looks up and he sees John, the beloved disciple. And he says, what about him, Lord? To which Jesus says, if I want him to remain alive until I come, what is that to you? What is that to you? You follow me. Friends, I think I need to hear that. I think that we need to hear what Jesus said to Peter. Don't worry about the way that God is using other people. Praise God that he's using other people. But don't worry about the way that he's using other people. Don't worry about how God is, what God has given other people and maybe hasn't given you. What is that to you? Don't dwell on your circumstances or how you compare. Get your eyes off of that. Look to God Almighty. Remember his amazing grace in your life. Rejoice in his grace in your life and then follow him. Friends, as we do this, God makes us into a company of nations. He makes us into a united, a harmonious assembly, a united church family that displays the power of God Almighty and the amazing grace of God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, it is our hope and prayer and desire that we would be a people that display the wonders of your power and your grace. Father, it is so easy for us to fall back into self-comparison and live our lives as if we have to perform and to be better than other people, other organizations, other groups. Oh, Father, help us to see your grace. Help us to rejoice in your grace. May we never belittle it, but be amazed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name.